Romans chapter 8 and Revelation 21. Romans 8, Revelation 21, a steadfast hope for the Christian. A steadfast hope for the Christian. We've been talking about why evil. It's appropriate that we begin the series in the garden and we will end the series in the garden. The Bible goes from a garden to a garden. Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? Romans 8 and then Revelation 21. Romans 8 beginning in verse 18 reading down through verse 25. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. And then Revelation 21, beginning there in verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Father, we're so grateful for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we... We thank you that that is the steadfast hope for the Christian. That because we are in Christ, we are joint heirs together with him. I pray for the one this morning who is in danger of missing that inheritance. 
because they are not in Christ. I pray that through faith you would draw them to Christ even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen to what Dr. Derek Thomas in a little book called How the Gospel Takes Us All the Way Home. Listen to how he introduces uh, Romans 8, this particular segment. He says, as I write these lines, the headlines in the newspapers are familiar enough, typical, in fact, of any newspaper on any given day. The same old, same old. Three people are missing and presumed dead following a landslide in a town just southwest of Berlin. The controversial drug, thalidomide, does not improve survival rates of patients with a certain form of lung cancer, according to a study. More than 100 people have been quarantined in China because of an outbreak of suspected swine flu. The southern elephant seal is in danger of extinction, one of more than 44,000 threatened species on the planet. And of course, we could get more up-to-date and more extreme even than that. We could include uh, 58 gunned down and killed in Las Vegas from a gunman firing from the Mandalay Bay Resort Hotel at a country singer's concert. And on and on the headlines go. Death, disease, disaster... Folks, all of these things are the norm in a world that is gripped by sin and cursed by Adam's fall in Eden. As Thomas goes on to write, singer Johnny Cash, who was known for his signature black attire, sang these lines. I'd love to wear a rainbow every day. Of course, that was when a rainbow was just simply a rainbow. I'd love to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything's okay. But I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back till things are brighter. I'm the man in black. Folks, creation too seems to be wearing black. When you think about the verses that we've read this morning. The world is horribly fractured. The world is not what it was created to be. The universe groans. But Paul wants, he wants us to lift our eyes from the doom and gloom and see if only for a glimpse, a brief glimpse, the glory that awaits us, the glory that is coming. What kind of glory, you ask? Well, the glory of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new garden of Eden, so to speak. That will literally cover all of creation and in which there will be no sin, no sickness, and no Satan. What a glorious day that's going to be. In the Bible, 
What we see for the children of God is the now and not yet. When we think about eschatology, what's eschatology? A study of end times. When we think of eschatology in the Bible, what we see is a now and a not yet. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus says the kingdom of God has broken into history now. We're new creations in Christ where the old is gone and the new has come. And yet it's not yet. Meaning that we don't see the full consummation of all of this. We live between the times, you might say. Again, it is a now and a not yet focus. That's what we see here in this passage in Romans chapter 8. Paul wants us to understand that the doom and gloom that we live with every single day, the the suffering and the heartache that we live with every single day is not the future that God has prepared for those who are reconciled to Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. A new day is going to dawn. And Paul's not the only one who writes about it. Listen to Simon Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A steadfast hope for the Christian. Let's see how Paul develops that and then we'll turn and look and see what John has to say about it likewise. First of all this morning I want you to see that we have a future hope to anticipate despite current suffering. We have a future hope to anticipate despite current suffering. Paul talks about that here in these verses in verses 18 and following in Romans 8. Look at how he begins. He says, for I consider. Now that word for, of course, links verse 18 with verse 17 that's that's come before. And what does Paul say in verse 17? That you and I, those who are in Jesus Christ, those who have repented of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a union. We're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we are joint heirs. With Christ. 
But the reality of being heirs with Christ and being glorified with Him does not occur until after we have suffered with Him. He makes that clear in verse 17. If indeed we've suffered with Him. Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, 24, No one can come after me and be my disciple unless he does what? Unless he denies himself and picks up his cross and follows me. Sure, there's a crown that awaits us, but first of all, there's a cross. There's general suffering and then there's also specific suffering because we are Christians. And that's what Paul is describing here. And again, Simon Peter is discussing the very same thing. Uh, And Peter goes on to say, if we're going to suffer, let it be because we are Christians who have not compromised our faith. But again, even though there is general suffering, Paul, like Peter, is speaking in this passage of suffering with him, with Jesus Christ. Folks, I want you to think with me for a moment. The Bible, the storyline of redemption in the Bible does not go from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. What I mean by that is we don't go instantly from the fall to the new heavens and the new earth. There's a time span in between. That time span being what? Genesis 4 to Revelation 20. There's a long period of suffering between what we read in Genesis 3 and what we see in Revelation 21. A very long period of evil and suffering. But verse 17 promises that for the Christian, he goes from suffering to glory. Now, unfortunately for the unbeliever, he will go from suffering on earth to suffering even more throughout all of eternity in a place called hell. The unbeliever has no steadfast hope whatsoever. He has nothing to look forward to. He has nothing to celebrate. Your loved one who is lost is doomed if they do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's that serious. But for the Christian, we will be glorified with Jesus. We will share in his victory over sin. We will be able to sing victory in Jesus throughout all of eternity. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Consider. For I consider. It's a mathematical term. An an analytical term. Paul's saying, add everything up. When I add up all of the suffering of this present time, now you would expect him to say, when I add everything up, when I consider everything, it's breathtaking, it's backbreaking, it's too much to bear, but that is not what he says. When you put it on the scale, so to speak, up against what is to come, 
It doesn't even register. You see, folks, Paul is not saying that the glory to come will just equal out the suffering that we encounter right now. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you put both sides on the scale, current suffering and future glory, current suffering cannot even begin to compare. It cannot even begin to register by comparison. To the future glory that's to come. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look again here at verse 19 what he says. For the creation waits with with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The idea is of a person craning their neck trying to see what is to come. Trying to see what's just around the corner. Paul goes on in these verses to personify creation. Creation is somebody who's who's straining their neck, who's trying to look, trying to see. And, And Paul's not the only one to do that. The prophets in the Old Testament, the psalmist in the Old Testament would oftentimes do this. For example, they would describe the hills and the meadows and the valleys shouting and singing together for joy. Sometimes they would personify the creation as mourning and groaning. What's clear in these verses is that creation knows that its state will change along with the state of believers. In other words, the fall in Genesis 3 didn't just affect Adam and Eve. It affected all of creation. And likewise, the complete redemption of believers one day will mean the redemption, likewise, of the created order. Just as creation shared in the fall, the creation will likewise share in the consummation of redemption. And until then... Creation is on tiptoe, straining to look ahead and see God's promises fulfilled to his people. Because when God's promises to his people are fulfilled, then finally the created order is going to be healed. It's going to be new. Stay with me for a moment here. Think with me. I'll explain what I mean by this. There is continuity and discontinuity between the now and the not yet for both us and creation. Let me explain. One of these days when you have your resurrection body, it will be a new and different body from what you have now. That's the discontinuity part. Your future body will not be subject to the suffering and sickness that your body now experiences. And we praise God for that, don't we? At the same time, there will be continuity. While my body will be a glorified body, unlike my body now, it won't suffer. 
in our resurrection body. We'll, we'll be new. We'll have a new body. And you will still be you. And I will still be me. And we'll know who we are. In that parable in Luke 16, Lazarus was still Lazarus and the rich man was still the rich man even though they had both been assigned to their future state after death. And also when Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room, they recognized him. He was able to eat in their midst and have Thomas touch him. Yet, Evidently, he passed through a wall or passed through a door. How can you be material to where somebody can touch you and you need and all of a sudden you can suddenly appear in the room? We don't know, but the Bible says it happened that way. That's what I mean by discontinuity and continuity. Discontinuity, it'll be a body unlike what we have now, not subject to the fall like our bodies now are. We'll be in our redeemed state without sickness and suffering. And yet at the same time, you'll still be you and I'll still be me in a glorified state. Well, the same is true for the created order. The created order will be like it is now. And yet it will be radically different at the same time. All of the natural disasters that we see now won't be true then. It will be a renewed creation that has gone through a complete transformation. But it's not going to happen apart from us. In fact, Paul, what Paul is saying here is that God's glorification of us, his children, is what sets off this whole thing. And creation, as he personifies it here, knows this. And that's why creation is on its tiptoes waiting for the consummation of the saints of God because it knows when that happens, it will be made new as well. In verse 20, look at what he says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now the options as to who subjected it are predictable, but the answer is pretty clear. Some have tried to say that Adam subjected it, others that Satan subjected it. But it's pretty clear that that the only one who had the right to subject it was God himself. Because God is Lord of creation. He's sovereign God. He's Lord of all. He's the only one who could have ultimately allowed what he allowed. But when Adam sinned, creation went from being good and very good to now being in a state of frustration. Where the creation itself is groaning. And then look at verse 22. Paul gives the analogy of childbirth. He says it's it's like creation is in childbirth. Look at what he says here in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Ladies, could you imagine? Think of... Creation, all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 and the fall in Genesis 3. 
labor pains going on in creation ever since then. That's a long labor, isn't it? Paul's not the only one to give this analogy. Jesus did in the upper room. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Folks, when all of this happens, creation itself will have gone from groaning and suffering and the slavery of corruption to finally being set free. But until that day, we experience suffering and creation experiences suffering. We groan and creation groans. And yet we have hope. And what is the outcome of hope? Perseverance. Without redemption in Christ, there would be no hope. In Christ, sin that brought suffering and corruption to begin with is erased. The separation from God that occurred in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned is erased. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us of our resurrection. And so all of this assures us that our hope is real. It's not just wishful thinking. What God has done in Christ affirms for us that God will indeed bring it to completion. Redemption's story will be completed. We have hope. Creation has hope. And so what's Paul say here? We wait for it. We persevere. We long for it. How closely tied together are hope and perseverance? Well, just listen to the following true story, and I think it'll indicate that. In his book on heaven, uh, Randy Alcorn records the following story. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainline California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that were going along beside her. And still, she swam on for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water... Along the way, her mother in the boat alongside told her that she was close and she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming. She was pulled out of the water and placed in a boat. It, it wasn't until she was in the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half a mile away. And at, at the news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, 
I would have made it. Folks, God has told us in His Word what's coming. For now, we're in a fog, but He's told us what's coming. So that by faith, we can see it. It comes down to trust. Do we trust God and His Word? Well, secondly, I want you to uh, turn with me over to Revelation 21. And see what John says about this. And what we're going to see here is the final and complete end to all evil and suffering. The final and complete end to all suffering and evil. And look again at what John uh, began saying in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away now go back to chapter 20 with me for a moment verse 10 says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then we go into chapter 21. What John is talking about here with the new creation. John says that he saw our heavenly home prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then we see the key in verse 5. God is making all things new. So folks, what is it that we see in these final two chapters of the Bible? We see the new heaven, the new earth, the new people, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new light, the new paradise. John even records the vision in verses 1 and 2 of the new Jerusalem. If we were to read on what he says about the new Jerusalem, he would describe it as being a perfect cube and it's pure gold. What's that make you think of? The Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament. And in the New Jerusalem, he says, The gates are never closed. All who are there may enter because Jesus has opened the way. Think about the Old Testament. The Holy of Holies, pure gold in there. Who could go in there? Only the high priest. And he could only go one time of year. Who's our high priest? Jesus Christ is. And he leads us into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. All of us, through Christ, will go into the presence of God.
We're told that the new heaven and the new earth has no more sea. Some scholars take that as a statement about the unity that there'll be in heaven because now all of the nations of the world, they're divided by oceans. They're separated by separate kings and governments. And so oftentimes the nations of the world are at odds with one another. And when you think about the leaders of this world with all of their... uh, Sinful agendas oftentimes. And planning war and planning hardships and and planning things nation against nation. It's been a constant plague on the world going back as, as far back as we know. But John is saying there is coming a day that we will all be under God's rule. There'll be no division. Here we see this new city, the holy, the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven. And our final abode has been made ready. It is adorned. In chapter 19, remember, the church was, was compared to a bride adorned for her groom. Here's the heavenly city, likewise. Like a bride, all adorned and ready for the saints. And so we are made ready like a bride for Jesus. And the new Jerusalem, like a bride, is made ready for us. What a beautiful sight this is going to be. The bride's completely ready, spotless. The heavenly home is completely ready, spotless, adorned. Folks, heaven is a place. That's what Jesus said in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. All of heaven is the home of God. And in God's house, there is room enough for all of his children who've come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Heaven is not like a family home that you grow out of. There's room for all of his children. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. A place where we will be with God. And verse 3, John says, God himself will be with us. Folks, in some way, just like it must have been for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it'll be that way again. God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden In just as good a way, even better, because sin will never enter that place again. We will be with God and He will be with us. And verse 4 says, God will minister to His people, His children. I want you to think with me back to the Old Testament for a moment. I want you to remember the tabernacle that went everywhere in the wilderness with Moses and the children of Israel. When they first set up that tabernacle and they dedicated it, do you remember what happened? The glory of God moved in. The Shekinah glory of God. And God tabernacled among his children. 
And then in John 1, what does the Bible say about the Lord Jesus? It says that when he took on flesh, God's son tabernacled among us. And then in John 16, what did Jesus say? When he was crucified and he was going away, he said, I'll pray to the Father and he'll send another like me and he shall always be with you. And so on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit came down and rested on believers. And then think of John 14 again. What did Jesus say? I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. And then what does verse 3 say? here the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell with them folks what do we see in the Bible God's heartbeat God's desire has always been to dwell with his children and can you imagine that happening in the new heavens and the new earth in a place where there's no more sin no more darkness nothing to hinder our Uh, walk with God and we will dwell with God in perfect righteousness and holiness imagine that kind of fellowship and the Bible is saying that's what you and I have to look forward to death will be gone death is no more it'll be removed Removed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that his resurrection was the first fruits, the guarantee of ours to follow. All of those who are in Christ will likewise be raised. And then in a sweeping way, verse 4 in Revelation 21 closes by saying, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All bad memories, all broken promises are erased. Folks, just think about it. No more broken homes. No more broken hearts. No hospitals. No cancer. No Alzheimer's. No nursing homes. No blindness. No deafness. No surgeries. No prisons. No ambulances, no sickness, no suffering, no dying, no funeral processions, not ever again. How can all of this be? Because he says at the end of verse 4, for the former things have passed away. The devil and the false prophet and all the unbelieving have been cast into the lake of fire. God makes a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's no more devil to tempt man. There's no more evil, no demons, no ungodly, no more sin, no consequences to sin. Everything is perfect. These are the promises that God gives to his people. Somebody says, is is all this not just too good to be true? Parents, don't we tell our children that sometimes? If something's too good to be true, it probably is. But not in this case. Because of the one who is telling us this. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And all of these are the sure promises of God. 
I think of the story of Henry Morris, and I, I've told you this before, but every, every time I read this story, it just it captures my heart when I think about what he went through. He was a faithful missionary who served the Lord in Africa for more than 40 years. And he tells about the very emotional day when he and his wife had completed their time on the mission field and they were coming back to America. Their hearts were full of all the memories they had of being on the mission field. They wondered if anybody back home would still remember them. Would there be anybody to greet them? What would their Midwestern hometown look like? Aboard the ship that day from Africa was President Theodore Roosevelt. He had been on a big game safari to Africa for three weeks. As they pulled into New York Harbor, there were thousands and thousands of people gathered to meet the president. There were bands playing and large signs to, to welcome him home. And as President Teddy Roosevelt exited the ship, the confetti began to fall out of the air and the crowds were cheering. Henry Morrison turned to his wife and said, We've given our lives on the mission field for the past 40 years. We've lived among the African people. We have celebrated with them. We have suffered with them. We have laughed with them. And we have cried with them for four decades. The president goes to Africa for three weeks, kills a few tigers and antelope and comes home to a ticker tape parade and not one person is here to say so much as a welcome home to us. He was so discouraged. His wife put her hand on his shoulder and said, but honey, remember this. We're not home yet. Back to Romans 8 a minute. Remember what I said earlier? All of this, Paul says, leaves you with a steadfast hope that produces perseverance. But we also have more than that. In verse 26, Paul says... In the meantime, in this time between the now and the not yet, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit who prays for us when we don't even know how to pray. That's what he's talking about in verse 26. And then in verse 28 he says, We have the assurance that despite all the bad, despite all the evil, despite all the suffering and heartache in the world, we have the assurance of knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. And so you put all these pieces together. You have the assurance 
of a glorious future without suffering. You have the assurance of a glorious future in God's very presence. You have the assurance of no more sin, Satan, sickness, suffering, or death. You have the assurance of the Holy Spirit's intercession. You have the assurance of God working all things together in your life for good. No wonder Romans 8 goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? All of the evil and suffering in the world now cannot erase the fact that God is for us. And redemption will be made complete. You have God's promise on that. And so persevere. Don't let current suffering diminish your hope. Like it does for so many people. Don't let it diminish your hope. Because you're not home yet. Would you bow with me please? I believe I'm speaking to somebody this morning who needs to come to Christ. Because again, you're in danger of missing out on all of this. And you're going to go from suffering to suffering. From suffering to greater suffering. You need to repent and believe and come to Christ. Others in here this morning, I'm convinced that you need to ask God to give you His perspective on your suffering so that you can see the whole picture. Because you're just, you're just down in the mud now. The mud and the slime of the suffering. And you can't see the end of it. But there is an end of it. Pray that God would give you His perspective. I also want you to pray for your loved ones that you know that if they were to die right now, your loved ones who don't know Christ, they would miss it too. Father, we thank you that when we think about evil and suffering in the Bible... From Genesis 4 to Revelation 20 is not the final story. You have something better waiting, something glorious, something perfect waiting for your children. And in the meantime, we have your promises and we have your Holy Spirit to comfort us and strengthen us. Lord, help us to be encouraged and to persevere. To not allow the fog of what we're going through to keep us from seeing the shoreline on the other side. Give us strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.